everyone, welcome back to Silicon Street, a podcast on private investing, technology, and entrepreneurship geared towards college students and young professionals. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Tom Haggerty, a managing director at TH Lee Partners, a Boston-based private equity firm investing in middle market growth companies. Tom has joined TH Lee back in 1988 and serves on a number of boards of the firm's portfolio companies. Prior to joining TH Lee, Thomas worked in the M&A group at Morgan Stanley, and he also has a business degree from Harvard Business School, as well as an undergraduate degree from my alma mater, Notre Dame. So Thomas, I'm really excited to kick off this conversation. How's everything going? Great. Thanks, Connor. And uh, uh, your, your pre-work is pretty good. I know this is all on the internet <laughs> now, but I think you nailed everything. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so I think to kick off, you know, I, I just gave like a, you know, two or three sentence description of you, but could you just, you know, for the audience, give a little bit more background on how you got into the private equity world? Um, and, you know, how did you end up staying at, at TH Lee for, you know, such a long period of time? Could you kind of describe your growth in the firm over, you know, the last, you know, 20 or so years? Sure. Uh, so, you know, I was a, a finance major at Notre Dame and, um, you know, coming out of Notre Dame, I was trying to figure out you know, what do you do? The, the general job prospects were at the time much more oriented towards what I would call more traditional corporate America. Uh, maybe it was smattering of banks. And then kind of uh, through happenstance, a, a guy who graduated a year or two, two years ahead of me had gone to work at Morgan Stanley and what was their really the beginning of the analyst program. I think their first class was like 81 or 82. I'm not sure. Mm. And, um, you know, he kind of, uh, said, hey, you ought to take a look at this. This is kind of an interesting uh, idea. And you know, as I looked into that, it looked a heck of a lot more exciting than going to work for um, you know, First National Bank of Chicago, for example. Sure. Uh, just because it was you know, uh, more transactionally oriented, kind of got your blood flowing, if you will. <laughs> and so I, I applied you know, to, to Morgan Stanley and a couple other places and uh, thankfully I got a job with Morgan Stanley joined there in the fall of 84, much like I think you're getting ready to trace mm -hmm. off to Citibank yep. <laughs> um, uh, in a month or two. Uh, so you know, moved out there. I'm a, sh a Chicago kid, Midwesterner. And I, <clears throat> I went to hang out with all the sophisticated Ivy League kids. <laughs> and uh, I felt like they had a leg up on me sophisticated wise, probably not from an educational point of view, which is worth noting. I think Notre Dame did a, a pretty good job. In fact, I used to joke, one of the people that sat next to me, a lovely woman from Yale, she used to tell me how unsophisticated I was, but <laughs> when she needed help with spreadsheets and IRRs, I was the one she called. So it was a, it was a fascinating you know, year or two there. Uh, really kind of a grim job, to be honest with you, right? Uh, it's a grind. <laughs> it, it is a, and it was a grind at the time that was dominated by uh, a lot of, really make work, right? I mean, putting to, literally putting together physically presentations at three in the morning, dealing with a centralized word processing center where if you got a typo and you were getting ready to do your, your book, you had to pull out an X-Acto knife and <laughs> you know cut an A out and uh, put it over the, the I that they had put in there instead. And so it was, it was a very interesting period of time. Not, not very little of the stuff was automated in the sense of modeling was all done on mainframe computers believe it or oh. not in 1984 <laughs> i think we had like one or two pcs on the floor that's crazy uh, for the entire uh m a department of morgan stanley which at the time i think led the league tables uh in m a so 
uh, you know, really uh, fascinating journey of both uh, the finance stuff, but also the tech stuff. Uh, totally. So after, you know, a couple of years of, of serious grinding, I was getting to the end of that and trying to figure out, you know, what do I do next? I was going to go to school and I'd gotten into a couple of good business schools. Uh, but I remember, I don't know if this would be a name that would mean anything to your audience, but the first uh, discount airline was an airline called People Express. It was actually run right out of um, uh, Jersey. So uh, some people over there will remember it. But uh, I remember uh, I didn't get to go to a ton of meetings back then. I was uh, basically uh, sitting in my cubicle, crunching numbers and whatnot. Yeah. But, uh, I, I got into a couple of these, these meetings and, and one of these meetings you know, maybe I'm building this up, but it was a very fascinating, uh, almost apocryphal moment for me from a career point of view. So I go into this uh, meeting and there's, uh, you know, three or four of what I would have considered to be the smartest guys at Morgan Stanley, which given my little worldview at the moment meant the smartest guys in the world. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, they were super successful young MDs, probably ranging in age from, I'll say, 32 to 38, something like that, you know, time yeah. 21 or 22. So <laughs> uh, way more sophisticated than me. And they had on their super expensive suits and their custom shirts and their Hermes ties, uh, you know, and they, they could really handle a meeting, right? So I was, I was so excited to, to get in there because the only other person in the room at the other end of the table was this guy in a a short sleeve shirt, smoking cigarettes from, <laughs> from Continental Airlines, right? And so I'm watching this meeting and, you know, our guys give their little pitch. And I'm like, oh man, they're so good. And over the next hour, maybe hour and a half, this chain smoking short sleeve guy from Continental Airlines, it became so apparent that he knew 50 times more than what these guys knew about People Express, which was our client, Mm -hmm. And obviously the airline business, sure. you know, and it was, it was an eye opener for me. And, you know, in retrospect, I, I would put different terms on it and interpret it differently, mm -hmm. but it was, uh, you know, maybe one of my first moments of saying, here's a clear difference between an agent and a principal, right? Mm -hmm. And here's someone who is a subject matter expert, as opposed to, uh, I'll call it a transactional expert, right? Mm -hmm. And that would be more the nature of, um, you know, working in the M&A department. Uh, totally. I, I'm grateful for the experience, right? It was what I might call the, the, the wide part of the funnel, right? Which was, hey, get inundated with the jargon, the technology of the business. But that moment stuck in my head because I, I would say prior to that meeting, I would have told you that I was really going to come back to Morgan Stanley, you know, if they would have had me and I, they were indicating somewhat that they wanted me to come back. Um, but that really kind of shook me that, you know, I, I really enjoyed being in the room with someone who really knew what they were talking about, right? Yeah. That really resonated with me. And so, again, I, I use different words now, but that would have been the start of what I would call the journey from away from banking, away from the advice business, away from the agent business mm -hmm. to, a, you know, a, a much more severe desire you might even say burning desire to get towards closer towards the principle, closer towards the running of the businesses and trying to figure out a way to merge, you know, some of the transactional stuff with some of the principal stuff. Gotcha. So 
you know, now in retrospect, you'd say, oh, gee, that makes perfect sense. That's almost the definition of private equity. Well, there wasn't even a term private equity, right? <laughs> At that time. Sure, yeah, it's evolved um, a lot. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I don't know if that um, is too long-winded of an answer. No, that's that's your perfect. First question, but that, that's kind of what happened. And maybe I'm building it up now in retrospect. <laughs> I, I still remember it pretty clearly, I will tell you. No, that's a, that's a great anecdote. I mean, yeah, there, there definitely are kind of those one or two moments where you kind of have that epiphany and that, you know, might set you on one way or another. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Um, but could, could you talk to us a little bit about, you know, the firm that you're at now, TH Lee? I know sure. you mentioned that you want to be, you wanted to be on the principal side of things um, and you wanted to kind of at least have a little bit more of kind of that subject matter expertise. So obviously TH Lee has like a few uh, areas that they focus on. Could you maybe talk about that? And, and why you think it's important for you to focus on one or two areas. Obviously, there's other larger firms out there that have more breadth, I guess. Um, but yeah. 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 Well, look, so yeah, you know, so I got out of business school in 88. And um, again, you know, kind of tossing my hat around, what can I go do? Mm -hmm. And um, you know, obviously I could have gone back to Morgan Stanley. There were a few other things I was looking at that were interesting. And this firm in Boston, which at the time didn't have an equity fund, they had a small mezzanine fund. So this is 1988. Okay. Sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, they're just buying small companies. And what I mean small, I'm talking about you know, 20, 30, 40 million dollar businesses. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just looked really interesting to me. So, you know, fortunately I got I got a job there, started there in the fall of 88. Uh, and then, you know, kind of rode for next 20 years, the what I call the institutionalization of the private equity business. So mm. it went from having no third party capital, we were basically, you know, using Tom Lee's personal balance sheet, which was highly levered, right? So there <laughs> even, even the bank, uh, you know, had some some pretty high gearing, as the British would say. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, it allowed us to do some deals. Um, and when we raised what was, it was called the second fund for Tom Lee, you know, we had I don't know, about 400 million bucks in that fund. So by today's standards of pittance at the, at the time, it looked like all the money in the world yeah. uh, going from zero. Right. And, uh, you know, we just kind of got off doing deals. We, um, you know, at the time I'd say we were a generalist shop as just about everybody was then, right. It was like, Hey, yeah. anybody who would take our money, we'd buy the company kind of business. <laughs> totally. um, and the business was, was so um, rich with opportunities that um, by and large for the first, I'll call it seven to eight years, maybe 10 years, you know, you were, you were, it was hard to not make money, right? You had a lot of, I guess the, the finance professors would call it structural alpha now, um, which is a pretty fancy term. Um, but there were a lot of reasons why I think the business performed well over a very long period of time. We could argue about whether those are, good reasons, because some of them are structural as to the tax code, structural as to some legal protections. We can argue about whether those are good or bad broadly for the economy, um, but they exist. And so, you know, we, we started out, as I said, just doing almost anything that came our way, started to develop some areas where I think we were more competent. Uh, we were doing some pretty good deals in consumer and retail. So two of our really early successes, which were huge successes, was Snapple. We made yeah. like 35 times our money on that. Wow. <laughs> that, that's um, very good from private yeah, equity. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, and another really big win, we owned uh, GNC or General Nutrition Centers, which are the little mall-based vitamin retailers. Mm-hmm. I think we made seven or 10 times our money on that. Uh, and then I uh, kind of on my own started to develop our, our financial services endeavor. And that was built of a couple of small deals I did early on that were really big successes where we made kind of 10 plus times our money. So, you know, you would have looked historically and said, hey, those guys like consumer, they like retail, they like financial services. And then, you know, we started to add a few other things, healthcare. Uh, we've, we've done some stuff in automation. Now I'm, now I'm really kind of whipping through, you know, 20 to 30 years. Um, and it's been an unbelievable ride, right? We've gone from a no fund to, I think our latest fund's five and a half billion dollars. So, you know, when you add all the AUM up, uh, while we haven't probably enjoyed the stratospheric growth of a very small group of people in the industry, by any measure, it's still been an extraordinary ride. Absolutely. And, um, you know, the business, as you would expect, with a lot of new entrants and everything, it gets more and more competitive. So mm-hmm. I think that's really what's pushed specialization, right? It's the yeah. old Buffett adage about a fool and his money are invited everywhere. You know, so if you aren't, you aren't careful, you're going to get your face ripped off. And mm-hmm. so you better... You better be like that guy from Continental Airlines in 1986, you know, who knows what he's doing, you know, mm-hmm. because if you, if you use some tennis, tennis parlance here and say, you know, foot faults or unforced errors are the bane of the private equity space. You don't want to, you don't want to do deals where the day you, the ink is drying, you know, the chances of making money are pretty small. You might not know that at the moment, but in <laughs> retrospect, it can become awfully clear that you, you put together a transaction that had very little chance of succeeding. And that's usually born of, you know, not understanding the space, you know, where you're putting your capital to work. Yeah, no, absolutely. Just to, to follow up on, you know, you mentioned how you've kind of uh, rode this wave of in, the institutionalization of the private equity industry, obviously a lot more competition as the industry has evolved. How is that, how have you seen that impact kind of the way you go about things? And then, um, obviously there's just like a lot of money chasing, uh, you know, a handful of excellent companies nowadays. Um, what do you see in the next, you know, five to 10 yeah. years? I think that's been a conversation that I've heard people at Nerd Aim who've come back to speak, talk about, um, and what that means for maybe say me who might want to go into private equity long-term or any other kind of student who might be listening. Could you talk about kind of how you see things from someone who's kind of sitting in that seat? Sure. Well, um, I've heard the adage, too much money chasing too few deals since 1988. Right? <laughs> and so, while that is a fair description of what I'll, I'll call one part of, this, of the equation of, let's call it supply and demand, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of capital. There's no question about that. But if you look at the deals the industry is doing now, it's much, much, much broader, uh, both as to geography. It's a global business now. Where totally. mm-hmm. principally a North American business for, I'll call it the first 20 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is also um, a much broader business as it relates to the industries that we will, we will chase, you know, whether that's more broadly defined as growth equity, whether that's software, um, you know, there, there are, so, you know, accurately getting a supply demand picture um, is not, I think the easiest thing in the world. And I will tell you that 
you know, one other way to think about it is, well, let's look at the results the industry has developed, right? And mm -hmm. again, we can go back to this, is this the structural embedded alpha or is it, are we actually good at, you know, our, our, our stock picking, if you will. <laughs> um, but the, you know, the industry has continued to outperform most asset classes. Uh, and now there's some people that will argue about that, but, you know, there's a lot of, the reason why there is so much capital in this space is because everybody's been pretty pleased with the returns. So, yeah. however, you know, you're the, the long arc of this conversation is that the space is getting more efficient, right? There's no question about that. And so, you know, if you had looked at return bands and said, here's top quartile, here's bottom quartile, and it might've been this broad, you know, now you're seeing, you know, that's coming in quite a bit. And there's also some survivor bias in some of the data. So you have to be careful sure. with that. But, um, you know, I, I still think we're, we're positioned to help a lot of these companies. And you have to remember, like for most of the firms, and I, I'll disinclude a few, we're really dealing with micro cap companies here, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're buying, you know, a 500 million, 800 million, billion dollar, maybe $2 billion company. You know, in the New York Stock Exchange, that's almost too small to be public, right? Yeah. So, and what you'll see in those companies is they lack, you know, uh, a lot of sophistication that you might see if you went to work for uh, Google or you went to work for Apple, right? And so, you know, you can actually add value, right? One of the things that we've done is we've developed some real operational talent on what we would call broadly, you know, go to market and digital marketing, for example. So. It would not be uncommon that if you looked at a $500 million company, that there's really nobody there who understands the digital world, right? Sure. And, and giving them some lift in that space, you know, can be really meaningful. So, you know, I still think there's some plays here, but your comment around, you know, the world getting more efficient and excess return being bid out of the market, there's no question that that's occurring too. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that actually kind of reminds me of, a previous conversation I had, I think it was with um, Tom Franco from CDNR. I know he had mentioned how, uh, you know, having all of the kind of industry experts maybe at the private equity firm can be really valuable just because, you know, that $500 million company is never going to have access to them otherwise, for the most part. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. It's so true. These smaller companies, you know, what, what you might find is that the CEO, you know, was head of sales or, you know, was head of marketing. And mm -hmm. so, you know, they're just the, the breadth of the experiences that they have are, are going to be ones that you can really add to, especially if you're looking at, you know, some form of M&A to help uh, accelerate growth. You know, they, they wouldn't know the first thing about how to buy a company or, you know, how would you integrate these things? And yeah. having some, some operational talent and some domain expertise can be particularly helpful in these smaller companies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, just to, to move on a little bit, uh, obviously you've been at the firm for a while and I'm curious, you know, what, what have been like the primary lessons that you've learned, um, not only from an investment perspective, maybe just like business or life perspective, um, you know, are there any like challenges that you thought were really instrumental, um, that you had overcome in, in terms of your growth as a person or your growth as a firm, um, you know, that might be valuable to someone who's starting out in the industry? Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, maybe I'll throw a couple things at you and see what your reaction yeah. to those are. First of all, uh, one thing that I think uh, Notre Dame 
I don't, I don't want to say created some naivete around, but um, <laughs> it can be a, it can be a nasty world, right? And there are, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people you'll meet throughout your career that are willing to pull you down into the mud. And so, uh, you know, maybe if I'm, if I'm trying to throw around some free advice, you know, just be super careful with whom you associate, right? Whether it be, um, you know, in your personal life, but, but professionally, you know, if you get a bad CEO, it's like nothing good can come of it, right? And, and, it's, and it's hard to get it off your own skin. You know, so I've, sure. I've dealt with a few people that, um, you know, left some indelible ink on me, right? And I'm not very grateful for that. <laughs> so, you know, um, again, I don't, I don't want to keep going back to some of the great adages of Buffett, but, you know, he says, look, if you really want to boil down what you want to find in the people that are your partners, whether it be in business or in life, you know, you're looking for, you're looking for intelligence, you're looking for initiative, but you also have to have, you know, that, that last thing, because if you, all you have is intelligence and initiative and you don't have integrity, those first two things just can get you in trouble. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, trying to figure out and, and aligning yourself with people that have integrity, it's, it's the most important of those three. Right. Uh, so if I could, if I could have had someone impart wisdom on me and put myself in Connor's shoes at age, what are you, 21, 22? 22, yeah. 22. You know, that's what I would, that's what I would say. And, you know, get shut of those people that, that don't have that because it's, you know, it just doesn't end well, personally or professionally, anywhere. Yeah, totally. I've seen that movie way too many times. That, that'd probably be my number one comment for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I feel like, I don't know, at, at least over time, I feel like you start to develop a lack of willingness to deal with people that you just like are bad people, like you just don't want to work with, you know, like your, your BS, your ability to put up with like the BS of it all, I think kind of goes down over time. Um, it yeah. does. And, it, and it's, it's just, it's a toxic stew. Yeah, right? and, it's, mm -hmm. and it's not easy to pull yourself out of it. They'll pull you down, right? Totally. And I've seen, you know, some CEOs do that. Their behavior, you know, they. I mean, they just. I mean, like you know, we we had to get rid of one CEO, for example, and uh, we ended up in a wrongful termination lawsuit with them. Mm -hmm. And I remember I, I had to go to the trial, and I remember watching him on the stand, and I'm like, this guy is like. He's just fabricating everything. And it's really astonishing to watch somebody do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, sure. how did I ever work with this guy, you know? <laughs> so it just, and the thing with private equity, you know, it's not like you can get out of these things. So, you know, if you find yourself in bed with this person and you aren't in a position where you can get rid of them or you choose not to, you know, it can be a years and years of association. So it's, yeah. it's almost like, the equivalent of a you know horrifically abusive marriage <laughs> yeah wow uh, that, that's a very very interesting analogy but but I, I think important for not only myself but other you know people listening out there is we kind of you know start off on our career just to you know consider those things because you know I think we, it, I, I would agree you're a little sheltered at Notre Dame I think everyone you know 99% of people at Notre Dame are you know someone that you, you probably would be would, would be good with doing business with um so. Yeah, it doesn't equip you particularly well to <laughs> understand. Well, and, and, and that's a good thing. I don't, I don't want to take a virtue of no, no yeah, totally. turn it into a, 
you know, a falling. But, you know, it's one of the most wonderful things about Notre Dame is, you Agreed. know, I would say virtually everybody that I knew and know from Notre Dame, I, I have real respect for their integrity. That's, that's an extraordinary comment. Yeah, absolutely. To- totally agree. And definitely have experienced that over, you know, yeah. four years I spent there. Um, I'd love to, you know, move on a little bit to some questions on, on markets. A few of these, sure. uh, some of my friends had, had sent me over, they were interested in. Um, so obviously you guys, uh, you know, are investing in, in all these companies, potentially public companies um, and taking them private. There's been a lot of, you know, multiple compression recently, the idea of growth at all costs being somewhat over uh, given the rising interest rates, et cetera. Um, how does that impact the conversations you guys are having, um, you know, in say investment committee and you're thinking about what businesses you might want to invest in? Could you kind of talk us through what that looks like and how you're navigating these, these uncertain times sure. for, you know, someone from my perspective, who's, you know, never sat in on one of these kind of meetings. Yeah. And maybe I'll, I'll pull back just a little bit in totally. mm-hmm. part of the analogy here, the way I, I think about this is, you know, the, the people always talk about, and we have this thing going on in Ukraine, obviously that's absolutely dread, dreadful. Mm-hmm. But the military adage is you're always fighting the last war. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think in the investment world, you know, there's a similar viewpoint of, hey, you're always fighting, you know, what went wrong or right in the last cycle, right? Mm-hmm. And so I would suggest that if you went back to, uh, you know, 07, 08, 09, you know, where people got killed, yeah, they bought non-durable business models, right? Um, or they bought companies that, you know, as I said, going back to you know, the fool and his money being invited anywhere, they, you know, they were in areas that they didn't really understand well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was business model selection that uh, was where capital losses occurred last time. And so this, you know, and price by and large didn't matter or wasn't within, I'm going to say 20%, okay? Mm-hmm. This time around, uh, I think we all gravitated to the best business models, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the question is, did we blow it on price, mm-hmm. right? So when I look at the last you know, two years, and that's kind of when it got really crazy, it was interestingly enough, you know, COVID hits in spring of 20, markets fall off dramatically for a very short period of time. And then they go on a, just a tear, right? Yeah. I mean, a tear. I think the, I'm going to say the S&P might've bottled them out around 2,300, something like that during the, mm-hmm. the depth of COVID. Yeah. And then went to 4,700. I mean, come on. Two years, you're talking about more than a doubling, right? And in the middle of a pandemic. (laughs) In the middle of a pandemic. No one, no one would have, have, you know, thought that was going to occur. And so uh, I think the discipline on the business models was pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, But the discipline on price was pretty bad. So, uh, you know, we, uh, I still remember, I think it was in the summer of 21, we did an offsite because we were losing everything, right? And you know the challenge in being a uh, money manager is it's hard to sit on the sidelines. Yeah. Right? So especially in private equity, where you know you've got I'll call it five years to deploy the capital, mm-hmm. and the again just kind of putting yourself in the shoes of the you know, person managing the GP. The challenge that you have is a you're going to probably deploy the money. Right. And you're going to be generally judged relatively and absolutely 
And relatively, the longer it takes you to deploy the money, you're going to have what we would call a gross to net conversion problem because you're just you're charging more fees against that capital for mm -hmm. less time than it's actually deployed. Yeah. So, you know, there are problems with sitting on the sideline, um, which I think also contributed to this, hey, guys, we've got to get deals done environment, right? So mm -hmm. um, I, you know, there, it, it's a negative pressure in the space that contributed to what I think was a wildly undisciplined price environment from, I really probably would say maybe the beginning of 21 through again, the beginning of 22. There was about yeah. a year there where, where mm -hmm. things just got crazy, uh, where you saw forward revenue multiples uh, for really good business models, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, go from, I, I remember we took a company public, a really, really good uh, uh, SaaS-based HCM payroll workforce management business called Ceridian. We took it public in 19. And I think we got, I think we got like six and a half times forward revenue when we priced, which we were like, oh my God, this is the greatest ever. Yeah. I think it went to 17 times forward wow. revenue, right? And, you know, the growth prospects, by and large, didn't really shift. You know, they were what they were. So, you know, any application of some reasonable fair value analysis, it started to look pretty crazy. <laughs> and so that was a microcosm of what was happening across the board. Um, and, you know, I my hope is at least our firm, you know, we, we underdeployed over that year. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, we've all kind of woken up. There's a little bit of a uh, seller and buyer strike right now. There aren't a lot of <laughs> transactions happening. You know, we went from a, yeah. you know, crazy full investment schedule from, you know, from whenever through I'll say, sixty days ago, and it's gotten pretty quiet, right? Wow. Uh, but there were some some things that got that got sold at fifteen times forward revenue that you know weren't making any money on top of it, right? Which crazy. <laughs> well, it'll be really interesting to see the marks, probably, especially in the venture space and the yeah. more, you know, growth oriented guys, totally. like, um, whether that's a gold or Toma or mm -hmm. uh, maybe an Atlantic uh, or a few other firms like that and see, you know, how big these marks come in. And you're seeing it in the, in the Tiger Cubs, right? I mean, Tiger was, I think now it's about 55% or something like that. You know, that's a big number. That's a big, yeah. Because they, they have a, they have a large AUM. <laughs> yeah. A lot yeah. of money. Right. It's a big percent. And it's not like percent. it's a, yeah, I don't know. It's not like it's 500 million or something. It's like many, right. many, many, many billions. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, and, you know, something looked funny. I think it was last year, you know, some of the larger endowments, um, Harvard and a few others were saying, hey, my privates were up 75%. We're like, Really? You know, I mean, because there's nothing might, might, might for the meantime. <laughs> yeah, right. Nothing really changed in your view of what these businesses were likely mm -hmm. to achieve. It's just the, the the competitive environment got really insane for about I don't know, somewhere between twelve and eighteen months. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, you mentioned potentially the concern with a lot of the late stage venture. I agree with that. Um from, from your perspective, uh, both from kind of, you know, the growth equity side of things, maybe like those late stage venture firms, as well as from a private equity business perspective, um, obviously there's a lot of multiple compression valuations have been reset and, you know, maybe their cost structures or the way they're going about their business doesn't make sense at the new valuation. 
Um, how would you suggest that these businesses try to kind of overcome maybe some of the, the you know, the, the hole that they kind of dug themselves into a little bit? Um, obviously, from the, you know, more venture space, they might just only have so much runway left, and that's its, its own problem. But then even from the private equity business, you know, if multiples are going down a lot, I mean, that almost kind of kills your returns right there. So how, how do you think about that? And how would you advise, you know, the management teams of, of these companies that have had these reset valuations? Well, my first advice would be just ignore the last 15 months, right? Because it was la la land, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it, it shouldn't be your anchor for, you know, thinking about what's the right next move for me, right? Some of these businesses, you know, the, the ones that are going to stress the most are the ones that do require additional funding to get to, you know, their quote unquote promised land, right? Of some mm -hmm. self-sustainable level of growth. And, and the problem with, you know, very high growth equity deals, depending on the space you're in, it's, it's super hard to self-finance 40, 50% growth, depending mm -hmm. on the, the structure of your business model, right? Yeah. They just require people, they require capital, all forms of investments that, you know, are almost always well in front of both revenue and profitability, right? Mm -hmm. So I would just say ignore it, you know, and, and you're going to have to build the business one way or the other. But that's really for the entrepreneur, right? Uh, I think for folks like ourselves, you know, there's, a, there's probably more opportunity, frankly, right? There's going to be, you know, there's going to be down rounds. There's going to be pressure on valuations. Uh, although we're, uh, I think we're going to sign a deal today that we're selling a company. Again, notwithstanding, you know, this, this, and then leveling off, it's probably still going to end up when we underwrote this deal, this company we bought in, I think 18 or 19, you know, we're going to end up with a better exit multiple than what we forecasted when we bought the business. Wow. Right. So yeah. part of this is about, you know, your entry moment and your exit. Moment. Yeah, no, it obviously and, matters <laughs> between yeah. the two. <laughs> yeah. And it was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't insane for, you know, three or four years. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and some of these businesses are so good that, you know, it's, you can't recommend price, right. That they're, they're very, very sustainably good businesses. Um, and you'll, you know, maybe what you've done instead of saying, you know, I could own it for three years and double my money. Now maybe I got to own it for four and a half years and double my money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of just have to play the game on the field a little bit. Uh, Ken, especially exactly as an entrepreneur. Right. That's a good analogy. I might use that if you don't mind. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, listen, I heard it on a podcast. So it's not, not right, long. Okay. Yeah, no idea. <laughs> all, all knowledge is derivative. I get that. But, um, you know, I, you, you, you can't just take your ball and go home, right? That's just yeah. the reality of, of the business. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is, I don't know, my fifth or sixth down cycle, right? My first five years in the business were a horrible down cycle, right? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting because this is the first, I guess, you know, I, I wouldn't count COVID because that was only like a week or two and then it bounced right back up. But I mean, I, I barely remember like 08, just I was, you know, eight years old. So like the first time in my kind of, I guess, you know, cognizant memory that, you know, I've seen things actually go down, which is interesting from obviously there's a lot of like money managers out there who might be, say, like 30 years old who haven't really seen it either in their professional career. So It'll be really interesting to see over the next, you know, year or two how things shake out. Um, I would say frightening. I can tell you, that was very scary. Okay, I mean, it was, you know, without the intervention of the federal government, you know, the U.S. economy was headed in a really, really dangerous direction. And yeah. There was a week in October, 
of 08, where I think you could have said it was 50-50 that both Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs were facing bankruptcy. It's crazy. Yeah. Absolutely crazy. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, what, what's, your, what's your outlook for the economy over the next year or two? Hopefully not <laughs> nearly as bad as 08. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got a few shocks to the system here, right? Um, and there's some real tail risks that are frightening, right? Notwithstanding, mm-hmm. uh, you know, probably a generally good employment level today. Yeah. Uh, you've got some ugly inflation in the system. You have far uglier geopolitical situation expressing itself uh, in Russia uh, that, you know, far and away is, you know, the, the, the scariest tail risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's very hard, like, you know, one, it's a terrible thing to say, but somebody's like, well, you know, if they launch nuclear weapons, who cares? It's all over, right? Um, which is a very jaundiced way of expressing that tail risk. <laughs> yeah. um, that, you know, some of these, you just have to say, look, I, you know, we get hit with a meteor, what are you going to do? Yeah. Still got to go to, got to go to work tomorrow. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, we tend to, we tend to be more micro investors reaching out into the macro. Okay. Um, as opposed to macro coming down, you know, that's not our gig, you know, maybe, you know, Stan Druckenmiller might be the right guy to talk to about that. It certainly isn't Tom Haggerty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it, how it shakes out. Yeah. Um, but I look, I'm a long-term believer, you know, the U.S. system for all its failings yeah. is vastly superior to anything else that's ever been created or expressed. And that's, that's if I have a pet peeve in the world, especially living here in Cambridge, which my running joke is there's more communists in Cambridge, Massachusetts than <laughs> there are in China. Um, you know, they... they they express all of the downsides of the U.S. economy. And then I'm like, okay, so what system do you choose to pick? And show yeah. me the evidence that that system will be superior because most of them have been tried and most of them have been abject failure. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, betting on the U.S., a, a well-run, uh, you know, U.S. economy based on freedom, based on rule of law, rule of law um, you know, has created astonishing levels of productivity and astonishing levels of innovation. And if you look across really all the cool things that have happened um, in the world in the last 50 years, the United States has been there for almost every one of them. It's, it's, it's amazing really, you know, and I I like the idea of betting on that system. Yeah, totally agree. It's, it has its flaws, but it, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's proven to be the best system, at least at ne- the best one anyone's concocted so far. <laughs> and the other thing I'll make, you know, is now that we're waving our flags, which I love doing, um, it's inextricably interlinked with personal freedom, mm-hmm. right? All the other systems, which are much more heavy handed, much more top down oriented, you know, they basically eliminate personal freedom, which is the mm-hmm. scariest part of all of it. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to be in Shanghai right now. And, no. You know, you've got armed people telling you, if you leave your apartment, we're going to, you know, at the very least, handcuff you and put you in jail. And at the very most, I don't even want to think about it. I know. It's absolutely crazy. One of my uh, roommates, uh, his, he, he's from around there, and his, his parents just haven't left their apartment in, like, forever. He hasn't seen them in, like, three years because it's just, like, impossible to go back. Yeah. It's absolutely yeah. crazy. 
Yeah, and you know what, like it, it, to me, the things that people don't talk about, what's driving a lot of that behavior in China or closer to home, someplace like Canada, mm -hmm. those, uh, I'll call them socialist democratic countries have massively underinvested in their healthcare infrastructure. And so part of the reason why Canada did such a horrible lockdown is they don't have the capacity. Like they can't, they literally couldn't care for the people had the virus spread in Canada like it did in the US. And, but we, because we have a nice free system, you know, it wasn't pleasant, but you know, sure. people didn't get turned away. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's a tough situation. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's my, uh, I got my soapbox there for a minute. So <laughs> oh, of course, no, love it. I should stick um, to private equity where I <laughs> maybe I have half a chance of being right. <laughs> um. I'd love to to wrap up uh, with more of just like a general kind of career advice question. Um, it's a little bit of a two-parter. So a lot of the people listening to the podcast are like college students who might be interested in going into private equity at some point in their career. So first part is, you know, what's like the biggest strengths that you've seen over the past 30 years among like the high performers who've been able to, you know, rise to the ranks from say an associate all the way to a partner? Um, and then second part is like, what are maybe some of the shortfalls that you've seen that might've maybe derailed someone? Um, yeah. So just kind of curious on, on those two things. Well, I would look to me, it, the most important thing is find something you really like to do, right? You don't want to go into private equity because man, I'm trying to bank a lot of coin and get out of the game so I can go hang out on the Jersey shore and you know, sip high noons, you know, three days a week. That's, that's my goal. Yeah. And that, by the way, if that's your goal, that's fine. I don't, I don't have a problem with it, mm -hmm. but, but I think you won't, it won't sustain you. Right. So whether it's private equity or anything else, the only way it'll be the right place for you is if you really find it uh, intellectually interesting and, and motivating to you personally. So that's, that's the first question you just have to answer for yourself. Right. Yeah. Because any job, that uh, you know requires anything like what private equity requires, or working at Citibank, you know you're going to give in the early part of your career, you're probably going to give 60, 70, 80 hours a week to it, mm -hmm. um, and then in your later career, you know maybe you're just down to 60, right? So it's it's super encompassing. Yeah, and it's still so, it's still a lot more than the 40 for a normal job, even even as you you know move your way up, which I think people might not. Understand, yeah. at least when they start out <laughs> right well and i'll tell you as you get into the more senior ranks of any organization then it's closer to 24 7 yeah <laughs> you know, i can i can assure you that you know a lot of holidays a lot of saturdays and sundays you know include working mm -hmm. and so you just have to realistically say i'm in for that right now if you if you can with confidence and knowing yourself well enough say that you know i think my my next piece of advice would be you, you got to figure out a way to continue to learn. Mm -hmm. right? um, school does not mark the end of your immersion and your ability to get better at, at whatever it is you're doing. And so, you know, wherever you land, when you show up at Citibank, you know, ask the associates uh, that are leaving the ranks, the VPs, who are the three smartest guys in our department and hang on them, right? Because that's your best chance to learn. I mean, you've got people yeah. that have been fully immersed in whatever line that you're in, uh, you know, for 10, 15, 20 years more than you have. And if you think this is what I want to go do, you know, go buck them. 
and do it regularly, right? Say, take me to lunch. I want to learn, you know, why uh, this happened or why does this happen? Did you, what, why did this deal go right? Why did this one go bad? You know, that, that lifelong learning ability and the resources are there. And I don't, I don't know many people who don't want to share, right? And they're, they're, you know, somewhat flattered by the, the actual question itself. So, you know, you can call that initiative, you can call that lifelong learning. Uh, there's probably three or four other things we could slap a label on that for. But it is, it's really that, hey, I'm, I'm continually investing myself in getting better at what it is I'm doing, uh, you know, through the resources that are available to me within the organizations I'm a part of. Yeah. That, that I'd say, number one, right? Uh, you know, dig into that, dig into the training they offer and, and just keep bugging people. It's the best way to learn. I mean, there's a lot of people, like we always joke in our firm, you know, when it comes to like, let's say we're looking at XYZ company, somebody out there knows what the hell's going on. You just got to find them. Yeah. You got to find the person who knows whether, you know, Ceridian's workforce management product is better than Kronos's for these seven situations and not mm -hmm. these three, you know, and that that's what informs whether you're making, you know, a good diligence effort and whether you're buying a company where you're going to wake up, you know, three or four years from now, and it's going to be reasonably bigger, right? Because that's all you're really trying to figure out in the investment yeah. world is, you know, this thing, which is, let's call it hundred million in sales today. Is it going to be at 150 or north of there, right? Sure. The rest of it's just a bunch of precision bullshit. <laughs> yeah, you can probably make the model say whatever you want it to say at some point. There's no question about it. There's a lot of reverse engineering going on there, right? Yeah. And part of, part of the job of sitting on an investment committee is trying to figure out <laughs> where did they apply the reverse engineering. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Tom, we like to, to wrap things up um, with these five rapid fire questions. They're the same that I ask every guest. Um, so they're just like short and sweet questions. Okay. Oh, um, yeah, I don't know if I can do that, but I'll try to do it. I don't um, know if I can do either short or sweet. <laughs> the first one is, uh, are there any books that you're reading right now or any that you just recommend to people out there? You know, Daniel Kahneman has written a couple of books um, yeah, totally. that are really good. I would highly recommend those because they, they really highlight the uncertainty that exists in the world, the uncertainty that exists in data, you know, and and the easiest person to fool is yourself. And I think that's the substantive question that he poses in those books. So I, I highly recommend those. Yeah, he's, he is an excellent author. And really, he really just goes like, you know, two or three levels deeper than, you know, you're probably thinking in your head. <laughs> and it's, it's where you got to be, right? You got to, yeah. you know, it's not a one model business. You need four no. or 10 or 20 models to try to figure out where's the signal, where's the noise. Exactly, exactly. Really makes you think think deeper um second one is are there any skills that you're trying to develop right now or any areas that you want to learn more about it can be business or not yeah. business related i'm trying I, my lovely wife we, we bought a little land outside of newport rhode island and my wife bought me a bobcat so i'm trying to become <laughs> a landscaper slash farmer and i'll tell you nice. i am having a ball working <laughs> this thing knocking down trees and pulling up bushes it's so fun i feel like i'm back in you know, fourth grade with a Tonka truck. <laughs> that, that sounds like fun. Love it. Um, third one is what's the most important lesson that you learned during your career? Well, I think we touched on it earlier, which is, mm -hmm. you know, find good, fun, interesting people 
associated with them, you'll have a much richer, fuller, enjoyable life. And it'll be free of a fair amount of conflict if you can figure out a way to walk away from the ones that you're a little worried about the, the integrity issues associated with them. Totally. Fourth one is if you could, you know, run it back and pick a, a different career. So not private equity, maybe not even investing. Yeah. What, what would you want to do in a second life? I think I'd do farming. I'd farming? Figure, I'd, 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 I'd be 15 acres in Hawaii and grow a bunch of fruit trees. Yeah, that would, that would be fun. In Hawaii, that would be quite yeah, the, exactly. Quite <laughs> I don't know about... It's Groundhog Day there, right? It's somewhere between 79 and 81 every day. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if I could do it in Indiana. I've spent enough time out there. I think I've had my, <laughs> my fair share of seeing cornfields and, and whatnot. Uh, but Hawaii... Well, you know what? I mean, farming, work. all kidding aside, yeah. there isn't a harder job on the planet. Oh, yeah. No, totally. <laughs> it's not even close. The grocery store, thank the people that you know, take on that work because it is, they work hard for a living. Totally. Um, awesome. Well, the last one I have, it's a little more fun. Um, you know, obviously the pandemic's slowing down. Uh, everyone wants to travel a little bit. So if you could pick anywhere in the world to go next, where would you want to go? I want to go to uh, Norway. Never been. And I've traveled to a lot of places over the years for work. Um, but something about being up there near the top of the earth uh, <laughs> is, is very appealing to me. So I got to get up there and see those steely waters and yeah. enjoy that. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of cool places to see in the Scandinavian countries. I, yeah. I would agree. It would be fun to go. Yeah. I could um, do a month or two up there just totally exploring. I'd be up for that program. Yeah. Well, Tom, that wraps up uh, all the questions I had. Really appreciate you uh, spending some time with us and giving your insights on, you know, private equity industry and, you know, some life advice too. So uh, was was a great conversation. Connor, thank you. And as Jimmy Dunn likes to end every one of his conversations, go Irish. <laughs> that wraps up this episode of the Silicon Street Podcast with Thomas Haggerty from Teachly Partners. If you're interested in learning more about private equity, I'd encourage you to check out some of our previous episodes. First, I would look at Capital Markets and Private Equity with Doug Brody from KKR, where we go over a lot of the basics of PE as well as how Doug supports the PE funds at KKR through his capital markets role. I'd also look at one of our more recent episodes called Lessons from a Storied Career in PE with Tom Franco from CDNR. We cover a lot of the evolution of PE over time as well as how CDNR as a firm works with its portfolio companies to drive operational improvements over time. So that wraps up this episode. We really appreciate you guys listening and we hope to catch you next time.